This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. A little coach's corner for you here. Um, as we've been learning about the value of time, right? You want your time uh, and those people that chose time over money, they showed a, a higher sense of happiness. And uh, the researcher, Ashley Willans, was telling us that they do show a higher level of happiness depending on what they go do with their time, right? And one of the things she kept mentioning over and over and over was the fact that if they go and spend it with people they care about, with the relationships that matter to them, then it matters. So time matters, um, but it's not the time that's going to just make you happier. It's what you do with the time. It's the choice of how you spend your time. And so um, in the Coach's Corner, I wanted to just give you some ideas of maybe how to strengthen the time that you have with the people that you love, right? Because, you know, have you ever gone on a trip with your family and you thought, oh, wow, when's this thing going to end? I mean, I love them and everything, but we've got three more days of this trip. So here's some rules of just uh, how to hopefully find the time and actually spend the time that you find to make a little healthier relationship. One thing, number one, is find the compliment, not the critique. Um, If all of a sudden in the middle of this time that we're spending together, what we're doing is just critiquing each other, whether the critique is out loud or not, if I'm sitting there thinking of, man, why does my wife do this? Or why are my kids like this? And that's where my head goes. Eventually, that's where my heart will go, right? My thoughts are going to lead to my feelings. If I am thinking critique, I'm going to feel negative. And if I feel negative, I'm eventually going to act it out. I might just speak it out. You guys are lazy. Or I might act it out and just start slamming doors and whatever. So make sure that when we are together, we try to find compliments and use more positive language. If anything, have at least more positive thoughts. And and, Because remember, your language is going to communicate that you care or not. Um, Another rule is lose the excuses. Uh, I taught time management for years with um, the industry leader, Franklin Covey, for years doing it and in and out, heard every excuse you could imagine about why people don't make time in their lives and for, for important things. But now we're finding out by the research, whether you make the time or not, you're going to pay for it because it's going to be your happiness. It also could be your health. You may have a great excuse for why you don't exercise, but in the end, it's just still your body, right? So it it's not about more time. If I gave you another day, you would use it the exact same way you choose to use every other day that's free to you. It's so careful of your excuses because nobody buys them anyway except you. <laughs> And uh, if you really want to have some peace of mind and some happiness, you're going to eventually have to choose it. Another rule that uh, comes from the book First Things First is uh, a simple – it's a time management book – is the simple idea of make sure you're focusing on the important, not the urgent. Most of us as humans spend our lives reacting to urgent things in our lives. If the phone rings, you're going to pay attention to it, right? If you keep getting text messages that keep pinging your, your device, you will look down at those text messages. But just because something is urgent doesn't equate to it always being important. 
All things that ring in this world are not equally important. And many of the things that are most important in our lives aren't urgent until you've lost them. Like your health is always important, but it's not urgent until they're calling 911. Then it's like, I shouldn't have done that taco cleanse for 30 days. It's killing me. Important things sometimes are not urgent until it's too late. So make sure you're asking yourself a very simple question every day. What's the most important thing I can do today to strengthen my relationship? Or what's the most important thing I can do today to have a positive impact at work? Ask the important question, not the what's the most urgent thing that needs to be done. And last but not least, sit down with the people you love and formalize time. As Ashley told us earlier, plan your time ahead. You already know three weeks from now you have a free afternoon on Saturday. It's already there. So go put on the calendar next Saturday we're going on a date. Plan ahead. By planning ahead, you'll actually always have time with the people you love. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. Is your job going to just be outsourced? I mean, will there be a day where the radio talk show hosts will just be outsourced? I mean, it already is in the DJ world, right? They just put in all the songs and a computer will play the song for you. I think that's going to be the first job that's outsourced. Well, I actually think board operators will be the first job that's outsourced. No, there's a certain talent in art that goes behind board operating. No, see, no. See, the difference with the talk show host is that we have to know how to work with people. You, for example... Benny, you don't have to work with people. You don't have to communicate. Yeah, it's, it's and hard. We, we wish you would. Don't get me wrong. We actually wish you would talk. But by the way, that was interesting. Yesterday, I, I left the confines of my office where I like to just hibernate and came out where the people are. And you were out there with – you were out there and all of the producers were talking to you. You were like involved in a, in a conversation. I know. It was like a real conversation. It was... It was like the first time, I think, in a year that I've seen you do that. Yeah. What's wrong? I... Are you okay? Isn't this supposed to be good? No, I think it's fantastic. Oh, okay. But it's like, I'm just wondering, are you sick? Um, was there... Did you need a ride? It's terminal. <laughs> so but... were, you, were you looking for a ride from somebody? Is that why you were talking to him? Well, Normally, you don't talk to the girls. Well, I, I was looking for a ride, but they all said no. So I thought I'd just... Yeah. Keep talking to let me them. Just, let me just tell you. If you ever need a ride, Terry's here. Oh, okay. Terry will take you wherever you I, need to go. I don't know. He Sometimes he has like a really stone cold look on his face. Yeah, that's Terry. Yeah. That's just how Terry rolls. Well, will he? You know what we ought to get you? Uh, you've heard about those um, self-driving cars. Yeah. Did you hear now they're self-driving strollers? Have one. Really? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I wouldn't share that. Um, Smart B is marketed as the first intelligent stroller in the world. It uses motion tracking sensors to follow you wherever you go, allowing for hands-free strolling. Isn't that great? So you just put your baby in the stroller and then you just walk and then the stroller follows you. That would be great. Sounds dangerous. (laughs) You're a baby. Um, Like all great ideas nowadays, the Smart Bee is currently in its crowdfunding phase on the Indiegogo website. However, if all goes correctly, the stroller will be easily uh, will easily be the most decked out baby carrier ever created. 
In addition to an electric motor that will assist in movement, the stroller will also feature wireless speakers so your baby can rock out a bottle warmer. Are you kidding? A rocker and three retractable canopies. Plus, the, the, you can have a temperature-controlled bassinet. It'll only cost about $3,200. So once again, the rich and their babies get to stay warm while the rest of us are freezing. The future doesn't look so good for the poor people or just us average folks. Anyway, uh, you can expect shipment April 2017. Ben, I'm worried about your future. You can easily outsource ice cream. No, you can't. No, you can. No. Not the way I make it. That's true. Um, I could just send my kids to the store and say, son, go get some ice cream. Outsource. Well, well, that's buying ice cream. That's not making ice cream. Right. But how many outsourced ice cream maker. I mean, how many ice cream makers are we going to need in the future if one robot can make every kind of ice cream? Yeah, but it's it's an art form, man. Like, I know what would happen, though, is the robot would come buy your ice cream. I would like to buy some ice cream, and it would buy your ice cream. It would then take your recipe, and then the robot makes your recipe. Boom! You're out of business. Anyway, I'm just trying to help you. Make sure you focus on it. Get the right product. Don't sell to robots. Don't. Got it. <laughs> mental note don't sell the robots that's the coach's corner folks fairly basic stuff eh we'll be right back Leadership has been uh, long treated as an art, a fuzzy philosophy based more on fads than on facts. That accounts for endless stream of game-changing management books that seem to come and go almost as rapidly as Paris fashions. It also explains why today's leadership guru is often more today's tomorrow's forgettable footnote. But effective leadership isn't an art. It's a science. Frederic Fabritius, neuroleadership expert at the Munich Leadership Group, is joining us this morning to discuss her ideas of in her book, uh, The Leading Brain, which will help us learn how to become better leaders and reach our full potential. Frederic, thank you so much for being with us today. Yes, thank you having me on the show. You bet. This is, um, to me, I love uh, studying leadership or an influence and how to influence people. But you're telling us science now and neuroscience, I guess, specifically is helping us understand uh, some traits that make people peak performers that leaders need to know about. Yes. And that's so exciting because we now have tools that are evidence-based. You know, it's not that I make up those ideas and say, I think it's a good idea you do this or that. We can actually measure brain activity and see what people can do to perform better. What, uh, what are, um, give us an example of what neuroscience is finding out about the brain that helps us target and, and, and really lead others better. Yes. If you look at the brain while well, people are performing at their best, you have to look at a brain region that is called the prefrontal cortex. That's what we use for rational thinking and decision-making and logical thinking. And you need three substances to perform at your best. And I call this the DNA of peak performance. And you need all of these three substances in order to perform to give your 
prefrontal cortex a boost, and they are called dopamine, noradrenaline, and acetylcholine. Um, again, if you are interested, I can tell you about each of these substances and how they make us perform better. So, so these are actual um, brain chemicals. Dopamine, we, we yes. kind of know, know about. Was, it, was another one adrenaline? Noradrenaline. Noradrenaline. Positive stress hormone. Okay. So, and okay, yeah. So, get, get into those three chemicals. Talk, talk to us about the, the impact that just chemistry has on the brain there. Yes. If you look at dopamine, dopamine is released when we're having fun. It's part of the reward circuit in the brain. So, when people are having fun at work, they perform better. And I'm not talking about the after work party. I'm really like, if you as a radio host enjoy being a radio host, then you will do a better job because you will have the dopamine flow in your brain, which enhances brain performance by helping you to um, process information more quickly. It makes your um, prefrontal cortex more efficient. So So true. You should be having fun. Yeah. And then you have the noradrenaline which is um, a little bit of healthy stress. So you need a challenge. Imagine you were to interview the same person every day. You would get bored Mm -hmm. unless it's a very interesting person. But, you know, after a while, you will have known all about that person. You need new challenges, new tasks. You always need to hire your stakes. So you need to be slightly over-challenged in order to perform well. And that's where the noradrenaline comes in. When we're a little bit nervous, and a little bit afraid to fail, and when we have um, a big, bit of a challenge, not too much, then noradrenaline is released, and that also boosts our brain performance. Oh, that's interesting. So, um, as a leader, we, you know, there may have been a theory that you got to make your office fun. And I remember back in the dot com world, we wanted it fun, so everyone had. You know, we had foosball tables and ping pong tables, and it was a really laid back environment. But you're saying you need to have more than just fun to release dopamine. You also need to be slightly challenged. If you're too challenged, that probably just creates, you know, stress cortisol, I'm assuming. Yes. But, but having the yes. proper balance of, cha- of challenge makes noradrenaline. Yes, and I call it to be slightly over-challenged. Yeah, yeah, so I like that. You need to be a little bit, it needs to be the step of next development. It's, you don't. You step a little bit out of your comfort zone, and that's exactly where you need to be to learn and to grow as a person. That's great. And what was the third so one? It's not about uncontrollable stress. You know, it's not about having a slightly unfriendly boss. It's about having tasks that are challenging. Right. Um, and the third one is acetylcholine. And acetylcholine is a substance that is released when we have focused attention, when we are focused. And this is something that I see really deteriorating in many organizations because people are constantly checking emails and multitasking. And if you think of a concert piano player, a performing artist on stage, He's not going to check his emails while doing that. You can't get into the zone or flow or your sweet spot if you're distracted. Hmm. That's fascinating. So, so, so we, we may be creating unintentionally cultures and environments um, that, that chemically are upsetting us. Absolutely. And many people are in a threat state. Um, a threat state is a part of constant stress in the brain, and we can see that it makes your prefrontal cortex work less efficient. 
when we're in a stress state, state, and I'm not talking about being challenged, I really talk about, you know, being overwhelmed with work and distractions and unfriendly people, our prefrontal cortex shuts down and we can't focus fully anymore. Interesting. And then um, it's funny, it must be horrible because we don't even know why we're shutting down. And it, I mean, it's but we just feel burdened because it's not fun or we're not being stretched enough um, or we're just we're we have too many interruptions. And yet our body is naturally just responding to that. And I, I guess the traditional philosophy would be, well, then you just need to, you know, hunker down and and suck it up and just focus more. But it's not about more focus, is it? No, and it's not going to help. What I what we can see with these, you know, everybody needs these three substances to perform well, but the conditions under which you reach your peak performance can be very different. Let's say I, I don't know you very well. Yeah. I mean, first time we speak, but imagine you were one of these people that run a marathon at the weekend, and you go bungee jumping on Monday, and on Tuesday you fly to Japan, and on Thursday you're back and you know, if you're one of these people, on, and they're called sensation seekers because they often have a mutation in the dopamine system that makes them crave exciting things in, from the environment. If you're one of these people that are sensation and thrill seekers, you need a lot of pressure at your work to perform well. You, you probably, prior to an interview, you wouldn't read any information about that person so that you're a little bit stressed about not hmm. asking the right questions. You know, whereas a person who has less of that active dopamine system and who is more thriving on routines and regularity and the comfort of um, knowing what's going on. And these people have a different structure in the dopamine system. They will want to prepare as meticulously as, as possible. And you need to give people the possibility to create the work environment they need to perform. So you could be an equally good radio host by being a sensation seeker or by being a person who needs more structure. But hmm. you need a work environment that allows you to choose your settings. Do, now, you call these um, – uh, are these are neural signatures. Like we all have our own approach chemically for what drives us, what makes us a peak performer. And um, how, how do I know what mine is? How do I know my balance? Mm-hmm. Well, there are tests that you can take. For example, the um, neurocolor test by Helen Fisher. And it will tell you if you're a person with a more active dopamine system or a more active serotonin system, which is about um, more equilibrated work and more structure and routine. Um, this is something that you will also find out as soon as I tell you about this, you probably instantly realize it, whether you're more of a sensation seeker or less. Mm. And that's all you need to know. You need to, I think you feel, um, when an environment, a work environment is either too challenging or not challenging enough. And, and, and is, is that the are, only one? Yeah. Is that the only, uh, chemical we're trying to manage is whether it's I'm a thrill seeker or not. No, it's not. Okay. I mean, you can, I can give you um, a little bit of an overview of that. Yeah, do. Um, first of all, um, you know, there's the dopamine system, and we have discussed that already a lot. People who have a very active dopamine system, they constantly look for new challenges and new n- novelty. They're novelty seekers. 
Um, so that's the dopamine, and people defer to that degree also, whether they're more risk-taking or more safety-seeking. People with a very active dopamine system, they're always looking for risk-taking activities. They could be gambling or drinking. You know, I'm saying this without judgment. It doesn't yeah. have to be, but, you know, the probability is higher that you engage in those activities. And then, then we have the serotonin, and the serotonin is important for mood stability. I think people might have heard about antidepressants that regulate the serotonin system because people who are depressed tend to have um, a serotonin system that is not active enough. Mm. And you, you change that by um, reducing the uptake of the serotonin uh, in the brain. So when people have a very active serotonin system, they are probably very stable, very reliable, very loyal. They like structures and routines. And I'm not saying that in a negative way, because in many organizations, there's a lot of emphasis on these thrill seekers. Right. Successful if you're always running and always trying to do the next best thing. This does not correlate with intelligence. We need all of these people. It's not, um, you know, I'm not a thrill seeker and still I, I manage to do things in a, in a very pressure, pressured work environment. It's about knowing who you are. You don't have to. But when I, when I worked at McKinsey in the past in management consulting and I was surrounded by people who constantly like to travel seven days a week, I wasn't comfortable. Yeah. But this doesn't make me a stupid person. Right, you know? right what I'm trying to say. So it's all about um, finding the right balance. People with a very high serotonin system, they could, when I ask um, executives, and I work a lot with executives, and ask them, what kind of jobs would these people be good at? And they say, oh, nursery homes and bureaucratic stuff, and they sit somewhere where they just process boring data, and, you know, maybe Mm. kindergarten teacher, and they said, no. Nobel Prize winning researchers, Pulitzer Prize winning authors, you know, you need a certain uh, attention for detail and a certain perseverance in order to get some things done that require a larger attention span. And people with a high, um, with a very active serotonin system, they tend to be able to focus on a topic over a very long time and to really get into the details and to really know all the laws and regulations and to pay attention to detail. And that pays off when you write a book, for example. It's not possible to do that without a lot of editing and re-editing. Oh, it's horrible. Sure. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, you need, you need those skills. They're not wasted. And then another substance that is important is estrogen. People with a very active estrogen system in the brain, and it's a neurohormone, um, they tend to be very good at relationships, and they pay attention to other people's feelings, and there's a high empathy in these people, hmm. and also high verbal fluency, so you're able to express yourself very eloquently. And we tend to attribute so that to skill. women, right? Yet estrogen, men have estrogen in their system. Exactly. And there are men with a very active estrogen system, and they often are writers, you know, and they have professions where they can excel at these skills. Yeah. It's not limited to women, but traditionally we see estrogen as a female sex hormone, when in reality men have it too. Hmm. And then we have testosterone. Funny enough, that's the, you know, the counterpart, and that's about 
logical, rational thinking. There's a certain tough-mindedness to people with an active testosterone system. There's a certain drive and a certain desire to, to have power as well associated. They have a good spatial orientation. So, you know, these four systems, the dopamine, the serotonin, the estrogen, and the testosterone system, we all have these four. You know, there's not a person who doesn't have testosterone. Right, right. But we we are different to the degree to which we express um, those um, substances. And they make up our, what Helen Fisher calls, neural signature. Hmm. And we need to know our neural signature if we want to to know how to move forward. We're speaking with Frederique Fabritius, and she's walking us through um, some information in her from her book, The Leading Brain, Powerful Science-Based Strategies for Achieving Peak Performance. Uh, we'll take a break, come back, continue discussing this neural signature and how we figure out and understand ourselves, as well as how do we lead others. It's a science-based approach to leadership instead of, you know, just a concept. Now the concepts are being proven out by neuroscience. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. On the phone with us, Frederic Fabritius. She's the leading neuroleadership expert at the Munich Leadership Group and is an executive coach, leadership specialist with extensive expertise working with top executives from multinational corporations like Bayer, Audi, Montblanc, uh, Ernst & Young. I mean, I think she's 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 touching them all. And as a leadership, uh, I, I used to do some leadership consulting, and it's interesting I think what, Frederic, you're bringing us is finally um, – and, and this is happening in, I think, a lot of areas. Neuroscience is catching up with all of these these philosophies and assumptions we've made about humans. Exactly. And it's uh, – you know, um, my mother, she said to me when I started out doing this, she said, you know, these are all things that your grandmother probably would have told people to do, you know, huh. work out sleep well, be friendly to your co-workers, increase trust and fairness. But the reason why people now buy in into that stuff is because I can explain why it's good to do so. And somehow that makes a difference. Right. Well, it makes sense, too, because um, because these are chemical issues, you can see why um, a woman having a baby would upset uh, chemistry or potentially upset it, or a, a man suffering from a uh, you know a cancer treatment could totally restart and reshift chemicals in their bodies. So it's almost like we're we're more of a, f- a flowing fluid uh, thing than we are this static human being. If our chemistry oh. changes, we change. That's so true. And also, I'd like to add, it's so important that we understand this body-mind connection. Mm. That might sound esoteric, but it's not. There's, you know, people used to think it's a one-way road. You feel sad, and then you may have a bad, um, sad body posture or a sad face. But it's the other way around as well. It's a two-way road. So if we have um, a good body posture... 
or if we put a smile on our face, this will also put us um, into a better mood. Mm, that's right. Because our brain picks up signals from the body. And when your body is relaxed, your mind will relax. And we, we've talked about that. Yeah, body posture, uh, Amy Cuddy's work um, yeah. through Harvard. And, 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 but I guess this is, this is something I've always wondered, and Frederic, here you are to answer it. Um, so really, my thoughts could generate my chemistry is what you're saying, but simultaneously my chemistry could generate my thoughts. Um, if, for example, if I have a lot of testosterone on board, I guess that's what would make me more consistently tough-minded, power-oriented, driving, driving, driving people. Um, yes. Now, what would happen if, for some reason, you know, you hit 55 or whatever and your testosterone levels start to drop? Does Do people start to wonder if your personality is changing? Is this a midlife <laughs> crisis? It's a very good point. Um, it's a very good point. As people get older, testosterone level drops and also dopamine levels go down mm. and people become less of a sensation seeker and are more um, oriented towards routine. To give you an example, in a nursery home, if you change the lunch schedule and you say, today we serve lunch one hour earlier or later, people will get very upset. Yeah. They get very confused. They will really experience this as a stressful situation. Whereas if you tell a 20-year-old person, you know, um, dinner is one hour later, they're going to say, like, whatever, you know. Yeah, an hour right, later, right. An hour early, I'm going to survive. People are more – there are two things that happen when we get older. We get more um, – adapt to to routines we we are less able to adapt to constantly changing challenges and we also become less of power seekers due to the drop in testosterone hmm. so we don't care so much anymore about always being you know the best and <laughs> it's um it's it can be a good change the good thing is that there are things you can do to prevent from that to happen okay. exercise really boosts your dopamine levels and that will boost your testosterone level. So those chemical substances, they always interact. They're not active in isolation. How do you, so exercise boosts dopamine and testosterone. How would you suggest you boost serotonin? Also exercise. You know, it has been shown that exercising every day for an hour is just as effective as an antidepressant. Mm. Yeah. And, and, you know, these antidepressants that have an, um, that um, interact with your serotonin system, exercise is just as efficient because what exercise does, it boosts all of your neurochemicals. Hmm. Do you worry, um, I, I just, I actually just did a workshop on anxiety and anxiousness and um, a lot of the people's pushback is they just don't want to start going down the chemical track and I guess my question is, the minute you start injecting or putting some new chemicals in to like maybe, you know, manage the serotonin levels, oh, yes. it's a system and all of a sudden it could start impacting every other system. Oh, you're so right. And you know what happens, for example, when people take um, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, which is the new um, SSRIs, you know, yeah. yeah, if people take that, 
it will have an impact on their dopamine system and it will suppress dopamine. And what happens when dopamine is suppressed? People don't fall in love as easily mm. anymore. People don't take risks anymore. People have less fun. People are less curious to explore new things. So your mood might be stable, okay? But it's kind of gray. You don't have ups and downs anymore, which is a good thing if you plan to kill yourself. You know, it's right. better to have a to stable have the, mood and right. not have a, you know. But if people take these medications over a long period without really having serious, serious problems, it will have a very negative impact on the other chemical systems and they will have less joy in life. Mm. I, I know an artist that uh, ended up taking an SSRI and it amazingly it stopped their depression they you know they weren't having the depressive thoughts but they also were no longer driven to create their art yes and dopamine is very much linked to artistic drive we can't be creative without dopamine and there's also no drive to be creative it's, it's like we don't care anymore now when there's a lack of dopamine it's a little bit of whatever you know i could do that or i could not you lack the drive to be creative yeah Talk about um, – so we we could go figure out what our neural signature is. Um, and then you know what else I guess is f- fascinating for me, Frederick, is why are we not um, – it seems like doctors should maybe be more on the forefront of this. And when you do come in with you know drive issues or other issues, figuring out and managing chemistry better and figuring out, yeah, you know what, your testosterone level is really low, your estrogen level is really high, this is going on, this is going on. It seems like it could be a really major tool that would help in mental health management and even just life management. Absolutely. And I think it's so important to know who you are. Um, Very often I have people coming, you know, executives that say, oh, I'm so stressed can you help me with my emotional regulation? You know, do you have techniques so I don't get so angry anymore in stressful situations? The first thing I ask is, you know, why do you want to do that? What's your work environment like? If you have a bad boss and your wife tries to divorce you at home, no wonder you're stressed. You should be stressed. You should be stressed. So it's not about trying to stay zen and then have a million mindfulness techniques so you stay calm no matter what. First, try to solve the situation. And when you know who you are and when you know what you need, then you can adapt your environment to fit your needs. You shouldn't change yourself. You should try to change your environment. Yeah, yeah, and, and, and start leading your environment. I mean, really, one little turn, one little change in your environment, getting maybe you back to your passion might reignite more of that dopamine, and all of a sudden you're back on the dopamine train. Absolutely. You're so right. So very often it's, you know, people are in the wrong work environment and you need to control that and, and, and feel. And, and, and also what has been shown is that when people take charge of their life, so when people take an active approach to solving their problems, um, cortisol is reduced and dopamine goes up and uh. people feel less stressed. Yeah. So, you know, what? that's I guess that's that's the key to this. Well, Frederick, we. You know, we appreciate you acting, knowing, learning about our brains, our science, our, our, uh, our chemistry. Powerful stuff. The name of the book, the, Le- uh, the Leading Brain, Powerful Science-Based Strategies for Achieving Peak Performance. Frederic Fabritius is, uh, is the author of it. Great uh, insight, great work. Folks, you can't get ahead of yourself enough. 
I mean, to, to now start taking these feelings and driving them down to a chemical level, that's power. Power in your own uh, life. We'll take a break. Come back. We'll be discussing, uh, we'll be talking with McKenna Baus, the mind bender. Stick with us. Welcome to her house. She is looking about. She is here to break down things you didn't know. Now. McKenna Bouse is in the house. McKenna is our mind bender, and today she's going to help us by, uh, bend a little bit of our stress away. Hopefully, that that is the You're goal. You're going to help us de-stress. Yeah, we all need that. I need that. I need it, like right now. Okay, help me. Well, here we go. So a lot of times when you're really stressed, people you know say, "Hey, it's not as bad as you think. It's fine. It's Relax. Fine. You'll be okay." They have you think like, you know, think of the positive side of this. Like, how is this going to be good for you? <laughs> and you know that that works. That's a neat thought for maybe you know thirty seconds. Right, right. And then you're just like, "Crap, what's and going on?" Wondering I can't. where you're going to go from there. Yeah. Um. But there's sort of this new approach that uh, was put out in the Harvard Business Review that's saying, you know, when you're stressed, one of the best ways you can get over that stress fast and just move forward is to force yourself to start going through the worst case scenario. Yeah, I've heard of this. Mm -hmm. Uh, I always call it the so then what? Yeah. Because then then you have to deal with, okay, well, well, yeah, well, she'll break up with me. So then what? Yeah. Well, then we'll be, you know, then we'll be divorced. So then what? Well, I guess it'd be horrible. Yeah, and then what would you do? Exactly. It forces the hand. It really does. So the, but the science is saying maybe you ought to look at the worst case scenario. Yeah, and so the the reason behind that is, you know, they sort of make the argument that pressure and stress are not the same thing. But pressure turns into stress when you add rumination to oh. it. When you sit there and you think things over mm-hmm. all the time and you t- start to catastrophize. Yeah, and worry and, about it. Exactly. And it just keeps getting worse and worse. And the idea is your worst case scenario that you think of right now is probably a whole lot better than your worst case scenario you're going to be thinking of you know, down the road. Down the road. Right. And right. so what you do is when you're f- starting to feel that pressure – and you can feel that, you know, stress is coming on and it's building a little much, you pause, you say, okay, you know, if I bomb this presentation, how bad is it really going to be? Right. And, you know, you're like, well, my boss will be really disappointed. I might not get that raise. That'd be, you know, that really stink, but I'm pretty much at the same place I am right now. Yeah. And so at that point you're like, okay, and it's a lot easier to deal with. And it stops you from ruminating because you've already set that sort of end point of where that worst case is going to be and that pressure doesn't turn into stress. Right. But if you hold on to it and you keep thinking fester, about it and fester. faster and faster, all of a sudden that worst case scenario turns into I lose my job and I'm living on the street and I can't feed my kids right. and you're a mess. Well, our last guest even said the mere fact that you act on it and start acting on it immediately creates – a dopamine and a serotonin push. Yeah. So you start medicating by by acting on it. So if if you're going to have negative thoughts, maybe the way you act on it is you you just figure out what's the worst case scenario. Really you control it. And what would I do? Yeah. You write the narrative. Yeah. And you do it while you're still, you know, in control of your line of thought. Because once you get 
to that point of stress where things are really bad, yeah. it's a lot harder to regain control of your thinking and to get rational. That ruminating, because ruminating, I'm telling you, that tips over so many people. Yeah, it's the worst. Well, especially you have a lot of time to think. And some people are um, what we call higher sensitive. They're people that just naturally are going to take in more of this stress. Mm-hmm. And, and if they can't get it out of them, yeah. then where is it going to go but just keep circulating in their head? Yeah. I feel like this is sort of the equivalent of, you know, when you have ate some really bad food mm-hmm. and you start feeling sick and you don't want to be sick, but sometimes it's a little better to just get it out yeah. of your system. Oh, no. How many times have I said, I just got to throw this up? Yeah. I just got to throw it up. You, you just got to be done. Yeah. And so it's sort of like oh, doing no, that I'm with keep it down. I'm gonna, no, I'm going to keep it down another couple hours. It's going to be worse. Yeah. And so this, it's just get it out of your system. And that's a pretty graphic example. But but I think it works. It's true. <laughs> it's totally true. So let's take it to Jeff. Jeff, can you see a day that you would just, instead of you know being optimistic, it might be better for you to just go ask, go look at the worst case scenario? See, I feel like that's more of my wife's job, and I I tend to be a little more optimistic. I wouldn't even say optimistic. I I think it's just a matter of wanting to put off anything that's negative. Yeah, or you, know, you want to go to that happy place. Yeah, yeah. So I think maybe I don't need to because she does that, and we're a good balance. But does, does she ruminate? So will she just keep spinning the negative story in her head? Um, yeah, but again, I wouldn't say she's so negative as she is realistic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. See, I don't have to do it because so, we balance so what each you do, other out. But what you do next time she brings up the issue like, so what if this and this happens? Then I always, as a, when I'm coaching people, I'm already like, so what if it does? Let's just go there and solve it. So tell me what you'd do. And then they start wrapping their head around it. And all of a sudden they realize, well, I'll, I'd get over it, I guess. I mean, I'd have to fix it. Yeah. But every once in a while, we just are resolved to the fact that we we have trials. Yeah, we know that it happens to everybody. And uh, the, whatever this whatever this example is you're talking about, this is our next one. Yeah, and we just get through it. Yeah. And by the way, you got through it before. You'll get through it again. Yeah. Worst case scenario, McKenna, you did it. Yeah. You just you just bent our brains out of shape. That's what Sometimes I try to do. you don't need to avoid it and be positive. Just go to the worst case scenario and think your way through it. What exactly. would I do? Exactly. McKenna Baus, Baus in the house, the mind bender. Thanks, McKenna. You can catch McKenna on our, all of our social media as well. We'll take a break. Be back. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. It's the house of Baus. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Hey, today we're talking about tips for raising your, your kids in an online world, especially how to raise kind kids, healthy kids. Um, we've already kind of talked about be careful that you're not shaming them. Have a big discussion. Open the discussion up with your kids. Let your kids teach you because your kids know more about technology than you do. And so if you put them in the role of being the teacher, they'll usually open up a lot more for you. Let them help you with your tech issues. It's the greatest thing when your child gets to actually teach dad. 
And by having kind of that inverted power relationship where your child's the knower and you get to be the learner, you learn a lot about your kids. You learn a lot about how they think. You learn a lot about their esteem. So that's powerful. Some other tools that I would I would just – I'd highly suggest because they're things that to me seem to go to the wayside when we get into the online world. Make sure for your children you're modeling excellent social skills because technology, I have a feeling, is going to impair some of our social skills, right? Like we have people breaking up with people via text. That used to be a conversation we'd always have face-to-face. We have people that um, are asking someone out on a date simply by filling out a form or typing something in on their website. Now, there's nothing wrong with online dating, but there's going to be a day that you're going to have to face the person you're dating. And if you don't have the social skills... You're in trouble. So as a family and as a couple, make sure you spend time teaching your children social skills. Teach them how to make new friends. Teach them how to start a conversation with somebody. Give them some starters. Hey, that's a nice dress. Where did you get it? What are you studying? Just ask. Teach them some skills about how to start a conversation. Teach them skills about how to end a conversation. Have you ever been talking to somebody that couldn't end the conversation? And you almost just want to walk away. Okay, I'm done. I'm out of here. This isn't working for me. Focus on social skills. And that might even be something in a weekly basis, maybe at your dinner table with your kids. Teach them a new social skill. Make sure that you're also giving your children an opportunity to order their own food at the restaurant, that they're going up at restaurants, and they're if they have to go back and, and get something or talk to the adult, let your kids talk to the adult. Teach them how to solve a problem by talking. Now, it's hard when they're younger, but when they're a little older, coach them through it. Model it. Model it. Model it. The more you model excellent social skills, I think the more hope your kids are going to have in the world. In the end, it's going to come down to relationships. It's not just going to come down to technology. Think of your Facebook friends. How many of those do you even interact with face-to-face? You could also um, model while you're at it your values and your beliefs. Have discussions with your family about what are the family values. What do we believe in as a family? When you see a problem online and you caught one of your children having looked at pornography, bring up our values. Talk about your beliefs. Talk about why that's harmful. Talk about how it objectifies women how it changes how we see each other and have those conversations. Start letting your children understand that the decisions you're making about disciplining them are based on a family value of we believe that we should have respect of each other and that wasn't respectful what you did. We believe that you should keep your promises. And coming home a half hour late, you didn't keep your promise. Tie your discipline back to your family values and your beliefs. Why that's important is because then as your child is interacting uh, with this crazy online technology that's ever-changing, they will always have a core set of values and beliefs that they can go from. 
No matter what happens online, son, be respectful. No matter what happens online, serve or love or care or lift people. Right? No matter what happens online, be safe. Don't invite someone into your life that you don't know. So model your model excellent social skills and model your values and your beliefs. Also, model connection and sensitivity. One of the things I think that happens with online experiences is um, we're we're in a weird state with these people. Uh, the research shows that you are much more likely to say something online than you are um, to say it to someone's face. You're more willing to say something in a chat room or like on a message board underneath an article that you didn't like. You're much more likely to be rude and angry and hurtful than you are if that person was in the room with you. There's just something about kind of the anonymity of being online that that's a problem. And the best way to fix it or fight it is connect. Teach your children that when they're talking to somebody via text, there's a human back there, right? The interface is just the text, but there's a human being that – and you need to be sensitive to what you say. Think about how they would interpret what you're doing. Talk about it. When they've, when they've received a text message that was hurtful, bring it up. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. In our family once, I had my son that would take pictures of one of my other sons that were embarrassing. They were like when he's sleeping. And then he would he would take him with his phone, with the son that was sleeping's phone, and then he would send it out to all of his friends. And he just thought it was the funniest thing in the world. Great. Now, if you live long enough and you have kids, you're going to have these issues with technology. So then we sat everybody down and we had a big talk. What does that feel like? So if your brother did it to you, how would you feel? I wouldn't care. Well, whether you care or not, what do you think he feels? He's your younger brother and you just sent a picture of him looking pretty goofy out to everybody he knows? That's hard. Have the conversations. Model connections. Show him what a healthy connection looks like. But you can't show them what a healthy connection looks like if you don't know how to connect. So that's why you're going to eventually need to turn off some tech once in a while and have some connection. And then another rule for you is just model the law of the harvest. You reap what you sow. You've got at some point, I think if if technology is going to continue as it is, which it will, it'll just continue doubling. At some point, um, we are becoming a, a population, I think, that is so addicted to instant gratification that I think we're in trouble. So we have to somehow slow the flow of instant gratification. And I would probably have a big discussion about it and challenge everybody in the family. What do you love the most? Teach them. You know, how many times have you just been going home and one of the kids says, hey, can we go to McDonald's or whatever? And you don't, you just, yeah, sure. You know what? Go home. Make a meal. That's one of the great things about making your own meal is it actually takes time. And the time with hungry kids is a good lesson to learn. 
But nowadays, we can just <laughs> shove a nugget in their mouth and say, there you go, pal. We're robbing the principles of the harvest, the law of the harvest. You reap what you sow. If you don't have the discipline to feel the desire to look at your phone and not look at it, you're in trouble. Because that means you won't have the discipline when your kid is mouthing off at you in 20 or 30 years. You won't have the discipline to not go off on him. We have to start teaching our children about some of these uh, natural laws of like instant gratification and delaying gratification. So technology is great. Don't get me wrong. I love it. It's here to stay. And I think it's incredibly beneficial to our lives if we lead it. But if we're not leading it, then we are just being acted upon and it's going to create bigger problems for us. So lead it for heaven's sakes. Let's just lead it. Anyway, there's a little tech advice for you from Coach Matt. Now, you all, you knew this. You knew it already. The hard part is uh, it's living it. That's where it gets a lot more difficult. So we're going to take a break. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. We have heard the news stories regarding people shooting at drones and they, you know, that they see above their property or organizations asking that drones not be used on their property. Although drones were once used only by the military, they are now taking on a new role in society, such as dropping off packages at the front door. That's the ultimate goal, right? Are drones the future? Here to speak with us today is Michael Brosh, a professor of electrical engineering at The Ohio State University and an expert on drone safety issues. Michael, thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, it's a pleasure. Uh, just just one, one minor note. I'm actually with Ohio University, which is a oh. university down the road. But, you know what? Oh, uh, yeah. boy. Yeah, let's, let's get that you. right. I don't know why they said the Ohio State, because that them is fighting words out there. <laughs> yeah, no worries. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it's, it's a common mistake. Oh, no thank you. Well, sorry about that. Now, Michael, talk to me about uh, drones, because we hear, we hear Google, um, we hear Amazon, we hear UPS, Drones are the future. They could save millions and millions of dollars of gas and, you know, you know, access uh, to getting getting product and and uh, packages to people. Is, is this real? Is this going to happen, do you think, in the future or is this kind of just a pipe dream? Well, it, it's it's going to happen eventually, but certainly in the near term, there are uh, numerous other value-added services that drones can and are doing. Uh, the delivery aspect is is something that everybody can, you know, it's exciting and people can uh, can can visualize that. But there are you know numerous other uh, things that drones are doing today uh, that are providing value to our society. Give us an example. What are some What are some of the things drones are doing now? I guess military. We we kind of know they've got a corner on the some of the military market. What else are drones doing that are providing service real time right now? 
Sure. Well, one of the uh, one of the most common applications is uh, aerial photography, uh, and one of the uh, well, there's numerous uh, applications there, but uh, one of the most common ones is in uh, real estate. Yeah. Uh, and you know, historically, you would have had to be stuck with just uh, photographs that the uh, agent took on the ground because. Uh, you know, getting an airplane or a helicopter nearby would have been just uh, prohibitively expensive. But uh, now with drones, you can put one of these things up uh, 100 feet above the house and take some really beautiful photos and put that in the listing. In fact, I have friends that have a business and they do this and they'll, they can fly the drone through the house. It can take, I mean, if it's a big enough house and, uh, or the business. And they also, um, there's some pretty cool things I'm imagining they could use it for with law enforcement. I mean, it seems like there's there's kind of no end to it, but then all of a sudden there's a lot of laws and a lot of rights that these drones could uh, infringe upon. Yes, well, that's been the concern uh, pretty much from the beginning, and, and I've actually seen a, a, a big shift in uh, in the, the perception and just, just the way drones have been portrayed in the in the uh, general press and the media for example uh, you know 5 6 7 years ago uh, drones were associated solely with military surveillance and 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 the word spy was almost always used with the word drone uh, but then, you know, as we've seen in the last five or six years, uh, with, particularly with the proliferation of consumer drones, uh, folks have started to see that, oh, well, wait a minute, you know, these things can be used for other purposes. Having said that, though, uh, the privacy concerns are certainly, uh, certainly not to be taken lightly. And one of the things we've kind of talked about on the show is, like regulating these who's who's in charge of regulation and should should these drones have to face the same you know scrutiny as a helicopter um and because they can cross into airspace they can interfere with uh with other with with airplanes with helicopters T- talk about who governs the drones well and that's a that's an excellent question um what has typically been the case uh, with manned aircraft, both, well, fixed-wing airplanes in particular, uh, helicopters uh, somewhat as well, uh, is that there, there's generally a, a minimum altitude uh, below which a manned aircraft cannot descend. Uh, and, you know, it's generally speaking, just, just kind of roughly speaking, it's 500 feet above unpopulated areas and 1,000 feet above populated areas. And this has been put into, you know, the federal regulations for, for many decades and, and primarily for, for the, uh, uh, just for the comfort and safety of the people on the ground. Well, uh, with drones, of course, uh, the vast majority of the applications that we're talking about, particularly aerial photography, uh, you know, you need to be closer to the ground. And in fact, for safety purposes, you'd rather have the drones and the manned aircraft separated. Right. So whereas the manned aircraft may be at you know 500 feet or below, above, the drones most likely are, are more most of the time are going to be 500 feet or below uh, just to keep them separated. Now, uh, the FAA, the Federal Aviation Administration, is still in charge of airspace, 
but when you start to get in close proximity to uh, property, then you you start to get into issues of property owners' rights and and uh, and things of that nature. Yeah. Does um, I, I guess overall though, because we kind of gone from just the remote control flying airplane or a flying helicopter, which I guess would have been a drone, to now um, a real classified drones that are even able now apparently to pick up and carry packages is when there's got to be a ton of engineering issues with trying to fly a drone. Like UPS had a video that came out of a UPS truck and they can load the drone uh, packages onto the drone from the truck. They can fly the drone to a bunch of different places. And um, but how what are the laws that would involve actually delivering packages? Because isn't it don't you have to fly uh, line of sight? Uh, you have to be able to see your drone in order to 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 fly it. Isn't that the law? Well, current currently that's the case with with very few exceptions. Yes, you're ab- absolutely correct. In in the United States, uh, the only uh, commercial operate well. For the most part, the only commercial operations that are permitted are exactly what you said. The drone has to be uh, has to be within the line of sight of the operator on the ground. And you know, if you're doing, you know, if you're a real estate agent doing aerial photography of a listing, that's no problem. Yeah. But as you mentioned, uh, you know, that's not going to get you very far for package delivery. Right. And so, yeah, you've you've absolutely nailed the one of the critical issues uh, that uh, that the community is facing, and that is how to safely enable these so-called beyond visual line of sight operations. Basically, when the drone is flying far enough away that the operator can't see it anymore, and that's what has to be done for uh, you know for effective. Uh, meaningful package delivery and the issues involved there are how do you get the uh, drone to you know keep from crashing into something else yeah. either a person or an obstacle or or another airplane i mean it does have like four blades spinning so um it's kind of a dangerous thing sure you're going to get your pizza but you might also you know become a victim of a drone is i guess this is your job then huh michael that you you and your engineers and uh, you know, computer science experts, avionic engineers—they have to solve these problems before this can ever be a reality. Indeed, and and it's something that uh, we and our you know colleagues in the industry have been working on for for quite a while now. It turns out that uh, it's it's not a trivial problem by any stretch. We oh. we uh, have you know humans in in manned aircraft, and and you know as long as the weather is good. If the weather's bad, of course you got air traffic control radar, that kind of thing. But if you're if you're in good weather, it's up to the human, the pilot, in the cockpit to the the word the phrase is see and avoid. You have to see other aircraft in the vicinity, and then do the common sense thing. Obviously, avoid them. Well, how do you get a how do you get a, a machine to do that? It turns out it's it's quite difficult, uh, and we have various technologies of radar and lasers and camera-based systems and things like that. And each one has its strengths and weaknesses. Uh, and you know there are systems being put together which leverage all these sensors, but they tend to be large and heavy and expensive. Uh, which, if you're if you're a large drone, that's fine. You you can accommodate that. But trying to put this onto a small drone uh, turns out to be quite a challenge. 
Is it uh, so? Are are you seeing that these companies are investing a lot of money in solving these problems, or are they? Is this just kind of a PR idea that they keep putting out there? Well, no. There's definitely there's definitely investment going on, and uh, you see, you know, practically on a weekly basis, you see announcements in the industry of of various uh, uh, sense and avoid type technologies that are either being under development or test or uh, things of that nature. So the the industry is certainly taking this very seriously. Hmm. Well, let's do this. Let's take a break and continue this discussion in a few minutes. We're speaking with Michael Brosh. He is a professor at the Russ College of Engineering and Technology at Ohio University and is uh, an electrical engineering, computer science, avionics um, professor there and is is walking us through all we need to know about drones and and the reality of them someday delivering anything to your front porch without, you know, creating a problem for you and the family. Interesting stuff, folks. It is the future. Stick with us. We'll be back. Continue the discussion here. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Today we're talking drones and drone package delivery. What would it actually take to get a package, you know, to fly on a drone from a truck, a UPS truck, let's say, maybe a couple miles to your house and safely deliver the package on your porch? Is that possible? Well, joining us is uh, Michael Brosh. Michael is a professor of electrical engineering at Ohio University in Athens, Ohio. He's been conducting navigation systems research for the past 30 years, and for the past 50 years, his research has included drones. He's also a licensed professional engineer um, as well as an instrument-rated commercial pilot, so he helps us uh, – he also you know, understands the aviation issues as well. So, Michael, thank you again for being with us. Oh, it's a pleasure to be with you. So as far as the ability to deliver a package, there are drones big enough to pick them up to carry them. But uh, one of the problems is to uh, avoid the obstacles. What are some solutions that you've seen in the engineering world coming out that might help the ability to uh, to do that without, you know, hitting an obstacle? Well, there's a couple of, uh, couple of things that we uh, are looking at. One, uh, for... Uh, en route navigation where you're just trying to get from point to point is to uh, is essentially to fly uh, at a sufficiently high altitude that you're uh, you don't have any uh, obstacles to worry about essentially you're above the trees and buildings that kind of thing the the hard part is is when you're taking off and landing uh, and that's where you're obviously in close proximity to to all of these kinds of obstacles and and uh, you know we have three primary types of uh, sensors that we use uh, in that regard. Uh, one is radar. Uh, one is a, a a laser version of radar that we call uh, a lidar. And then uh, the third type is essentially conventional uh, camera systems. Mm. They're referred to as electro optic systems, but basically they're just fancy cameras. So then you got to watch the camera and make sure you're noticing the power line. But a LIDAR, I guess, or a radar would pick up uh, power lines, it would pick up trees, and then the the 
I guess the computer on board would just navigate it through those obstacles. Yeah, the, the, absolutely. The, uh, the the tricky part in this is to you know process the data that the sensor is providing uh, and make sure that you are correctly identifying the obstacles that are nearby, and then also making sure that you're not being uh, bothered by what we call false alarms if the if the sensor erroneously says, "Oh, there's a you know there's an obstacle out there," when there isn't, then that that can you know, obviously cause some disruptions as well. It turns out that each of these sensors has you know has strengths and differences. Not surprisingly, a, a, a laser-based system uh, is not going to work very well in in certain kinds of smoky and foggy conditions, mm. whereas a radar can see right through that. So. Uh, the, basically, the the long term solution is is going to be an integration of of two or three of these sensors in order to get a, a more complete picture of what's actually around you. But then, I guess you're also talking cost, right? Because then everything you add to this and weight, uh, so these then have to be bigger and bigger drones. I'm assuming. Yeah, well, that's that's the catch. Yeah, exactly. The, every, every time you add on a new sensor, you are adding size, weight, power, and, and cost uh, requirements onto the thing. Uh, one uh, aspect of the sensor development that's that's we're going to benefit from is uh, the work on autonomous uh, vehicles. Huh. So they have you know similar concerns of size, weight, power, uh, and it's a potentially a much, much larger market. So uh, what, what I'm anticipating happening is that sensors being developed for the uh, autonomous uh, uh, automobile market will, and we'll, we'll be able to leverage that uh, in, the, uh, in the drone industry as mm. well. You also have um, this idea that, I mean, eventually it's, you're, they're going to have to be avoiding other drones. I mean, I can see a day when, you know, you've got a lot of drones flying around. Do, do you how how do you see this happening? I mean, I guess a lot of major laws and management and I mean, how are the air traffic controllers going to handle it and how do they currently interact or do they interact with drones? Well, that's a great question, and, and of course, uh, to a certain extent, our modern air traffic control system uh, it has been developed partially in response to uh, a legacy system back, you know, a hundred years ago, where there there was no radar, and 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 there was a famous accident in the 1950s of uh, over the Grand Canyon, where two passenger uh, jets ended up colliding, and and you know, it was a horrendous loss of life, and and as a response to that, uh, you know, the FAA. Uh, came into being, and the the entire uh, air traffic surveillance network with radar and and all of this stuff led to what we have today. So, um, how are drones going to fit into that mix? Well, a couple of things. One, as I mentioned earlier, uh, we're likely going to have a segregation of of airspace. Higher altitudes are mostly going to be for for manned aircraft, lower altitudes for the drones. Uh, you'll still have the issue of how do the drones stay away from each other. Uh, and that'll be handled through a combination of 
procedures. So over certain airspace, you know, drones flying in certain directions will be at certain altitudes, and if you're flying in an opposite direction, you'll be at a different altitude. Hmm. That's that's the way we handle it for manned aircraft. This is still in development. NASA has entire research programs on basically drone air traffic control. Ultimately, though, there will be a need for each drone to be able to see and avoid other nearby drones. Do you think uh, you've been through pilot training and you've been through instrument certification? Do you think there will be a day where drone operators will be required to get similar, you know, licensing, similar ratings? Oh, they already are. Are they? Uh, as a matter of fact, the uh, um, the FAA put into place. Uh, well, prior to this rule, um, there was no uh, easy provision for folks to fly drones commercially uh, except through a, uh, a waiver process. But last year they put in place a new regulation. It's called Part 107, uh, and it's for so-called small UAVs, basically those UAVs less than 55 pounds. Uh, and if you want to operate commercially, uh, then, uh, yeah, there's the, you, you have to get a license. And oh, wow. You have to learn about uh, airspace rules and regulations and, and things of this nature. That's great. I mean, so at least we're we're doing something, right, to, to, to make sure that not anyone can put them out there. Because, again, we hear stories of, you know, near midair collisions with drones, near airports. I mean, I know there's laws about that. I guess in the end, what uh, – what else would you? What else do you excite you as a professor that studies this, that is working on this? Where else do you see that these will benefit us? Well, uh, it's, so a couple of things. One, you 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 did mention that uh, you know there there are these sightings of drones in in places where they shouldn't be, and so one of the big challenges we have in the industry is uh, to a certain extent just. Uh, public awareness and, and education. Uh, you, you've got folks that, that fly these things and, and may not necessarily be aware of the danger they're posing if they're flying them close to airports, things of that nature. So that's one of the challenges that we have is just better, uh, better uh, public awareness. Yeah. Um, uh, but uh, having said that, uh, on the positive side, you know, where, where you know, can these things uh, m- you know, make the most impact? Uh, one of the uh, one of the ways that I see uh, that it'll it'll help tremendously is in uh, what we call infrastructure inspection, and so you have say uh, very tall radio towers, hmm. or you have uh, wind uh, turbines for for power generation. You know these these humongous uh, wind turbines. Uh, you know, this infrastructure has to be inspected to see if parts are starting to wear out or fail or corrode, you know, things of this nature. And historically, we've had to send humans up, you know, hundreds and hundreds of feet into the, into the air in order to, to look at these things. And, you know, not surprisingly, accidents happen. People die as a result of these inspections. Uh, we may very well be able to eliminate that uh, by using drones. You know, send the drone up there with a high-resolution camera, uh, take a look at the bridge or the tower or the, you know, the, uh, the wind turbine, and, and do your inspection all from the safety of the ground. I think that's, I mean, just that uh, plus, you know, fi- fighting fires, I mean, sending, being able to send drones up in certain places, I think, could be valuable. There's, there's, there's so many, I think, 
powerful opportunities that technology can can help us with and secure our even lives if if we just know how to manage it, manage it and make it work. Well, we appreciate you. Michael Brosh, thank you again and uh, your great work there at Ohio University. Um, boy, thank heavens there's some people thinking about this, right? Can you imagine if all of a sudden we just were making the laws without some experts behind the scene trying to figure out what the laws need to look like? We'll take a break, come back, continue... Uh, giving you the insight, the information you need to live longer, love stronger, and lead healthier, happier lives. Stick with us. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, uh, We've talked Trump. We're going back to Trump. One of the things that's happening with President Trump as the as the president, a lot of CEOs, corporate leaders, they they now are a little worried because Trump could immediately put your company on notice. Trump could immediately once he puts your company on notice for doing something he doesn't like, then you could have your stock drop. Trump said last night he was in Kentucky. Yeah, he had a uh, a rally. He's that's what you do. Um, he spoke about Colin Kaepernick. Now, he's the quarterback yeah. of the 49ers who would take a knee during the national anthem. Trump says that no no NFL team is, is looking to sign Colin Kaepernick as a quarterback because they're afraid of the Trump backlash on Twitter that, would he, that he guarantees what happened because he's not respecting the flag. So he's taking some credit for this. Yes. Okay. So – whether that's true or not, that's that sort of perception. He influences am- amongst companies. There are yeah. CEOs in Silicon Valley, in CEOs in Detroit with the auto companies, CEO in all kinds of uh, yeah. industries across the across the spectrum. There that are they have their social media teams up at three a.m. Eastern. You know, so on the West Coast, that's like what one o'clock, midnight, something like that, where these people are <laughs> up waiting for Donald Trump to tweet something because they don't want to wake up no. and their company's been a, been a featured in his Twitter feed. You could lose millions, hundreds of millions, yeah. So they're out there trying to combat this. So, okay. Uh, I found this on – there's a website called Axios. It's a new – kind yeah. of a news website. It's uh, conversations with executives, top CEOs, and here's some of their tips of people who have dealt with Trump in business and now you have to walk in and talk to him in the White House. Step one, get to the table whether you love him or not. Go to the table because many are saying, hey, Jeff Bezos ought not be sitting down at the table with Trump because he's – nobody likes him. But they're saying get to the table. you got to get face-to-face with this guy. Talk to him. He's, he's a transactional guy. He wants to see you. Yeah. Step two was give him something he can call a win. Some companies are like, hey, we're announcing some jobs that they announced a year and a half ago that they were going to do anyways. And they let but Trump announce Trump takes the credit. That's not a bad idea. Then he feels like if you're going to have an increase in jobs, tell Trump. They say he has an elastic view of winning. Yeah, he just wants to put his name on the winning. Uh, find a uh, three is find and exploit common ground. Find and exploit common ground. People, real estate, politics, private aircraft. Trump has been most engaged and open-minded when dealing with aerospace companies, partly because he can talk planes, because you know he owns one. And uh, infrastructure execs because he spent his career building high-rises. 
he has a surface level at best understanding of most policies. So go in for uh, don't, going in for any sort of policy yeah, discussion. Yeah, don't go deep. Work. No, no, no. Just talk. Hey, I have golf clubs. You have golf clubs. Do you want to do a golf club deal? So talk on something he's going to yeah, relate to. Smart. Four, know that he's a vindictive guy who harbors grudges long beyond the moment. So don't cross don't him. Don't tick him off. <laughs> That's great advice. And five, work Steve Bannon and Jared Kushner. Both men sit in on key meetings and often get Trump alone afterwards to shape reaction and follow up to the interaction. Both are accessible by text and cell and like playing the role of Trump whisperer. Really? So get them, get the Trump whisperers involved. Yeah, those are his influencers. Probably now Ivanka. If if you're, if well, that's yeah. more to your advantage, if you run a company, maybe she's the one you go after. Trudeau. They're saying Trudeau from Canada is really getting well, Ivanka involved. Right. Yeah. Maybe over involved. Possibly. That's weird. You can't even have a friend mm. in politics without everybody thinking there's more going on. Right. If you look at the photographs, it'll come out of that. It's kind of weird. Um, <laughs> okay, well, that's great advice because I know uh, Jeff wanted to pitch a, a, an idea to Donald Trump. Well, it. it was a different Don. Oh, what Don? Oh, yeah. Don Shaline. Oh, Don. Oh, that Don. Our Don. Okay. I thought you were talking about Donald Trump. You wanted to pitch a new show, but I guess... Well, he's a media. He probably wouldn't have a lot of say in that. Well, he's a media mogul. No, he. Don't get me wrong. Yeah, he'd probably have some great advice. Yeah, but uh, ultimately, he would have to answer to Don Shaline. Yeah, I don't know if that's going to happen. We all answer to Don Shaline. Let's not be. Let's not lie. Hey, uh, interesting. Again, it's just the president's just getting started. He's in day, what, 60-something? Seems like, you know, 160. No, he's just getting started. And so, you know, he's still got he's still got legs. He's still got time. Don't believe the press. Don't, well, believe part of what they're saying. Don't believe everything they're saying. That's what Donald's taught us. Don't believe everything the press is saying. We'll take a break, my friends. When we come back, we'll continue the journey to help you you know, get a leg up in life. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Did you know that there was so much research on the spiritual benefits um, and the health benefits of spirituality. So I see it all the time with my clients. They come in and uh, I, I, teach a, I teach a basic concept of body, mind, spirit, that everything we do, we are going to either have to orient from our body, our mind, or the way we think, or our spirit. Our spirit, I teach, basically knows peace. The example I always give um, like adults about the spirit is when you're holding your baby, you're in the middle of the night, you're not, you know, thinking he's going to be president or anything. You're just calm. You're rocking your baby to sleep and you just feel love and peace and just, you just feel joy, right? To me, that's the power of the spirit. 
Spirit uh, is, and, and again, and she described it so beautifully, Dr. Lisa Miller did, spirit is, is the essential form of who we all are. And every major religion is basically going to understand that there's some spiritual part of us. That spirit's always operating. I believe it's inside of each of us. Then we all have minds and we have bodies. The mind, the, so the spirit brings the peace. The mind wants to be popular. The mind wants to be pretty. The mind is the identity we've all set up for ourselves. So we come to this earth, and when you sit there and you look at that cute baby, and that baby's you know two months old or five months old or ten months old, and you're like, oh, you're so beautiful. Look at your eyes. You're so smart. You're the smartest baby. Oh, you throw that ball so hard. All of those different things start to create an identity for this child. And eventually that child is going to think that it is all of these things, blue-eyed, blonde hair, whatever, throws a great curveball. But the problem is that's not who you are spiritually, right? So there's a little bit of a discord between who you are spiritually and who your mind thinks you are. You might even just think you're a a guy or a gal, or you might think you're smart or you're not. Oh, yeah, I'm not very smart. I didn't do very well on the ACT. Failed the ACT. So all of a sudden, because you failed the ACT, your mind thinks that's who you are. Now, do you think your spirit cares about your ACT? Your spirit knows that you're this being that's been living and has existed and you're powerful beyond measure. Yeah, but I'm fat. That's my mind telling me I'm fat. Or I can orient from my body and my body basically wants pleasure or pain or procreate. That's pretty much what it brings or the party. What's for dinner? So sometimes we come to life and and we let our bodies, our desires direct us. Sometimes if I have fear, my body might feel fear because I've got to go talk to my boss about whatever. So my body creates chemistry. My mind makes up a story. Yeah, he's not going to like me because of this and this and this, which creates complexity. But at any point, we can get back to our spirit. So however you get to spirit, some meditate, some read scriptures, some will sing a hymn, some will just think of their God. Imagine your God just holding you as you're, you know, walking in with you to go talk to your boss. If you have to go in with your God, what on earth is your boss going to do that will matter? You can still feel peace, right? So body, mind, spirit. And I'm telling you, I teach this all the time to people and they come in and once they can start to recognize if they're feeling, you know, body, mind or spirit, then we can get back to the spiritual core, I call it. We've got to get back to that spiritual sense of who we all are. And when we do, we feel peace instantly. Now, it doesn't change everything, right? It just changes how you see everything. If you just lost your spouse to cancer, you're going to probably have to operate at all three of those levels. Your body will miss that person. It will ache to be next to that person. It will create major pain chemistry. Your mind will start creating major fears and convolutions like, oh, am I going to be able to make it? I don't know if I have enough money. I don't even know where the insurance is. What if I can't find somebody else? What if I? What if nobody wants to be around me? Our fears start to come up. Fears don't exist in your spirit. They don't even exist in your body. Your body's going to respond to a stimulus. It's not just going to automatically feel the fear. Something's got to kick in, right? That might be the mind. So the mind starts to kick in and create stories for you. So a lot of times our grieving is us trying to manage our mind. 
A lot of times our fear, the most difficult things on this earth tend to be, I believe, conjured by the mind. So body, mind, spirit, we're doing it all the time. Coaching 101, the number one secret, let me tell you. You don't need to get in spirit. You already are in spirit. You just need to notice where you are. And the minute you notice if you're in body, mind, or spirit, you're already moving to spirit. Because the only thing that notices its mind is the spirit. Right? The mind doesn't notice itself. That's It thinks that that's who you are. But when you start looking at yourself like, are you kidding me? I'm making such a big deal over something that's so stupid. The minute you're starting to think that way, you're already moving into your, your spirit. Again, we are spiritual beings having a human experience. We're not just human beings having a spiritual experience. It's, it's the most powerful tool I've ever seen. I have a son that's in Mexico serving a, a mission for the LDS Church in northern Mexico, and we, had, we got to talk to him on Mother's Day. And he just sat there and spoke spiritually to my other son that's about to go on a mission. And it was the most amazing spirit-to-spirit conversation you've ever seen. And I could see my son's mind spinning because, oh, he's so scared to go out and doesn't know what he wants to do. And my other son just basically shared his testimony, his belief, and the spirit talked to spirit. It was the most incredible thing. Folks, everybody out there, the people in the car in front of you, they're all spiritual beings. Whatever your religion, we're all just spiritual beings trying to make it through this crazy thing we call life. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. Honestly, um, a drought in the West... Do you remember the Dust Bowl, you know, in the Midwest, um, the Depression? Do you remember Hurricane Katrina? I mean, a problem in any part of the country is a problem for everybody in the country. Your, you know, economic problems in California are going to impact everybody. So when we think about any of these challenges, I, I would just, as part of the Coach's Corner, challenge all of us to remember, and, and Tony Arnold, our earlier guest, brought up a great word, or two, or actually three, uh, hope, and he, he taught us that hope is a byproduct of having agency, knowing that you have choices to make, that you are an agent that will act, and I believe every human being on this earth is here to act. You're not just here to be acted upon. You're here to act. You're not even just here to let, you know, nature act just upon you. You can also proactively choose how you're going to manage nature to the degree that you can manage nature, right? Um, You also have, so you have agency. You also have to keep your choices and your options open. I would call that freedom. He calls it pathways, But the more freedom you have, we can have all the rights in the world and the freedom in the world. But if you don't act on the freedom because or you don't see that you have freedoms, then they're not there for you. So hope is a byproduct of knowing you're an agent with choices. And the best way to get more choices is to keep your mind open and keep learning more and more things. And the more things you know, the more choices you have, which gives you more hope. Right. The minute you have no more options and you don't think you are an agent, we're in trouble. And so when we're trying to sit and think about managing our our, our monies or if we're trying to manage our water supply, uh, we've got to know that we're agents. And so think about that. It's one thing in this world to be given all the rights that we have. But with every right is a demanded responsibility. We hear the Supreme Court making decisions all the time that are holding up rights. And with those rights come responsibilities for all of us. Um, and 
with water usage comes certain responsibilities, especially if you want to be part of the community of water. And this demands management and this demands some proactivity and some planning and some 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 choices to be made. That was one word he brought up was the hope. Another one he brought up that I think is fascinating is stewardship. Do you feel as a user that you have a stewardship over how much money or how much water you use? We made a mistake once. One of our lines in our house uh, broke, and it was an underground line outside, and it was just spewing water for months. We didn't even know about it. And um, we eventually had the water you know, company come to us and just say, whoa, you've used thousands and thousands, hundreds of thousands of gallons of water. <sighs> I felt horrible. I felt guilty. Like, we felt guilty because we've wasted all of this water. And our kids come home and tell us to turn off our water and don't brush your teeth with the water on. Do you feel like you're a steward of your resources in your city, in your community? Because every one of us, we are. And steward is is a really sacred thing. You have the You have the stewardship of the environment, but you also have the stewardship of your family to teach your family how to appreciate and love and care for the environment. And you don't have to be a you know big tree hugger to go do that, but you can you can be a good steward. So just remember those words steward, agent, options, right? Pathways and hope. It's all good, folks. It's all good. Uh West will make it through the drought. Let's just let's just plan. Let's get on the same page. Let's be cooperative. Let's be good stewards. That's the coach's corner. We're gonna take a break. More on the Matt Townsend show next. White-collar criminals are categorized as businessmen or government officials who commit a financially motivated but nonviolent crime. Eugene Soltis uh, interviewed 50 former executives about their crimes to learn how they tick, to learn how they think in his book, Why They Do It, Inside the Mind of a White-Collar Criminal. Soltis dives deeper into the stories of these once seemingly successful business leaders, and today we have the benefit of having him with us to talk about his findings. Dr. Soltis, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for the invitation. This is uh, this was a really a very interesting um, read, and boy, the book, by the way, is huge. Well done, Doctor Soltis. <laughs> Thank you. Very well researched. Now, there's there's a different psychology apparently of a white collar criminal and um, uh, and just the average you know mugging on the street. Is that what you learned? Yeah, there's some very different characteristics associated with white collar crime. Uh, in particular, they're not close, intimate, physical offenses. Uh, In most cases, you don't need to get near uh, or even ever know who the victim is. Um, As a result, it it makes it easier to perpetrate in many instances these these really uh, damaging offenses without ever really feeling that you're actually doing harm to someone specific. Yeah. I mean, I guess that's that so does does their crime sneak up on them then because of that do they not even fully get how impactful this is that's the part that it, it took me a while to really get as i spoke to many of these former executives is that they don't fully understand when they crossed the line and i think that's genuine it's just because sometimes the line is blurry in business 
But even afterwards, they understand what they did was, was harmful and that they're now facing some serious consequences because of that. But it doesn't really resonate in their gut that they did something so terrible. Uh, take something like insider trading. I mean, it's this kind of abstract crime that you uh, undermine the integrity of the financial markets. But really, in the scheme of things, if you made $50,000 from trading, it's not going to really instigate this really strong feeling that you've seemingly undermined the well-being of the entire U.S. financial system. Right. And, and they're really – they're just business people. And one of the points you bring up in the book is they, re- they kind of do a cost-benefit analysis on the crime. And the cost-benefit pays off in their mind. Yeah, and a lot, a lot of these, a lot of these instances, yeah, it's it's blurry. I, how I like to think of it is, it's a failure of of managerial intuition. They don't actually see the harm associated with the actions at the time, which is really different. I mean, right now, if they drop the prohibition against murder in most towns and communities, I could still walk outside. I wouldn't be worried about a pile of people coming to run up right. and stab me. We have a natural inclination, if you're a reasonably socialized person, to not commit that kind of harm. But in the business world, where a lot of these things, you're highly incentivized, highly motivated to push it more and more aggressively, uh, with, when those, in those rules and regulations are sometimes a little bit blurry um, or can be easily overlooked, uh, that's when you can actually push ahead uh, and go, go beyond this line and, uh, and commit some things that are pretty damaging and illicit in the process. Now, is this how you got onto this topic? I mean, you're a business professor at Harvard, for heaven's sakes, and now you're and now you're going to the prisons and the pokey, and you're talking to the these these people. Um, what was your What was your goal? What was your motive? What was your drive? Uh, so my drive was I. It, this started not as a research project or as an academic inquiry. Uh, rather, this started as, as a personal curiosity. I think like. Most people, when you look at the, the front pages of the, the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times and actually see uh, yet another one of these corporate titans, people that, you know, like many people, I looked up to a number of these individuals. Yeah. These are the people that speak at our, our university commencements that are the big donors in society and wondered kind of what the heck happened again. Uh, so this started out with just uh, one late one evening sending, sending uh, a, a few letters to some well-known executives from Enron and Computer Associates and Tyco and asking them some just questions that were, um, uh, that were on my mind. And from that, uh, one, uh, this was one of the first letters I received from Dennis Kozwalski, the former CEO of Tyco, mm. uh, who was convicted of embezzling over $100 million while he was actually one of the top CEOs in the country, uh, said, sure, uh, I clearly have plenty of time on my hands now. Come, <laughs> come visit me and we can chat. Wow. Did you – were you excited to think, okay, I'm going to go pick this guy's brain? Yeah, so in, initially it was ex- excitement because I mean, this is someone that you've, you've kind of read about for years, both in, in positive and then more recently in kind of a negative context. Uh, so it kind of excitement. But then when I pulled up to the prison, I remember this the first time, and, and this is a, a, a low to medium security, so it, it's, it's just fencing with the big barbed wire and a couple layers, and then you, you walk in. The prison's, and this is, you know, again, a, a low slash medium security. Uh, it's exactly what you expect a prison is like, though. It's, it's yeah. cold, it's dirty, it's noisy, it's really uncomfortable. And it's actually something throughout this project. I've never, I never gained, let's say, uh, a greater comfort for going to visit people in prison because it's, it's, a, it's a tough, nasty, rough environment. Mm. In fact, you, you talk about that too, where a, a lot of these people were right before they were caught, 
doing what they were doing. They were also, you know, on the top 10 lists in magazines and they were speaking in, in big, uh, big, in big groups and they, they had a lot of accolades. They had a lot of attention. They were all, a lot of them at the peak of their career, right? These didn't seem like desperate people. No, not, not at all. I mean, some of the people that are in the book, uh, I mean, take someone like, you know, Raja Gupta. I mean, this is the former managing director of McKinsey and Company. Oh. I mean, really one of the most you know, celebrated business leaders uh, in, in the world. Uh, it really had seemingly everything going, you know, personally and professionally. And, you know, ultimately, in the end, he, 23 seconds after a Goldman Sachs board meeting, is calling up a, a billionaire hedge fund trader and divulging what he just learned at a Goldman Sachs board meeting. Mm. Um, Something that's just seen in such contradiction to a career that you don't get to the top of McKinsey after 30 years by being sloppy. Uh, I mean, he's thoughtful, strategic throughout his entire career, but then it was able to make these these really quite compromised-looking decisions uh, after that time, which is why I think when we think about some of these challenges that executives face, they're how easily influenced we are. Uh, if we start spending time around people with different norms and beliefs and kind of different rule books, we're going to start playing by those different norms in that different rule book. And, you know, examples like his and some of the others I talk about in the book are I really, in many ways, I look at a tragedy uh, to, see, to see what happens to these business leaders and the consequences that has uh, on all of us. Hmm. Was it when when they would act out like Raja did or others, was it were they following someone else's example usually or were they just innovating illegally? So, so yeah, that's, a, that's a great question. I, I think in some cases it, there, there's, there's some people in both camps. Uh, sometimes it's this is just how the game is played. Uh, a lot of people, you know, some of your listeners might have heard some of these kind of recent, the, the LIBOR or the FX kind of rigging. Um, yeah, kind right. Of, uh, this kind of traders from all around the world that were literally fixing the interest rates. But this is something where, I mean, they were doing this o- openly over their chat to different banks. I mean, this is something they weren't being particularly sneaky about it. I right. mean, the transcripts are all right there describing what was going on. They're joking about how they're rigging it. This is something where I think if any of us would have, you know, straight out of college, joined one of, these, one of these banks, which is virtually any large bank that had one of these desks, your boss would have said, you know, when you need something moved around, you just kind of call your buddies at the other bank and you talk about it and you kind of adjust the things as needed. And that's just how this is done. Huh. It's what, not only what we do at our firm, it's what all the other firms do. So you would say, oh, this is how I, this is how I work in this market. This is just how, how the game is played. So it's not surprising that you would adopt that. Um, in other cases, when I think of something like Enron, though, they were being innovative hmm. uh, in that every time they saw a, a, another rule or regulation that could have kind of stopped them, they sat back and said, we see that as a problem. If we think a little bit harder, a little bit more in a more clever fashion, can we figure out a way around this? And, and ultimately, that I see as their, their failure. It wasn't, wasn't a lack of ideas, but it's the fact that they never saw a stoplight a stop or stop sign and said, you know, we just need to stop here. They thought, well, let's just take a little turn, go around this, and we can go faster. Yeah, yeah. Is, um, what was the total – so you had 50 people you visited and, and researched, but the, the total theft that they took was how much? Did you ever add that up? Oh, gosh. So that would be – I mean, once, once you put Bernie Madoff in the mix. Oh, that's true. Uh, huh? I mean, you have 20 billion there that in some sense, the other ones, I mean, when you start talking hundreds of millions, I mean, those are big numbers, but yeah. it just starts getting dwarfed. But 
the couple major Ponzi scheme individuals I spoke with. So, uh, I mean, well, you know, the, the, the kind of the three largest uh, in, in history, or four largest, are Bernie Madoff, Tom Peters, Alan Stanford, uh, and Stephen Hoffenberg. Um, I spent time with all of them. And those are all in the, you know, billions, multi-billions wow. of dollars. Uh, so it's, it's Ponzi schemes that, that really, you could say, add up. Yeah. And it's the, the interesting thing about all of, just if we just took those group, the, the Stan, uh, Stanford, Hoffen, is it Hoffenberg? Hoffenberg, yeah. Hoffenberg and Madoff, just the, but that was hundreds or thousands of people, maybe tens of thousands of people who lost their pensions, lost money, lost, I mean, th- these few people impacted a lot of people. Yeah, I mean Hoffenberg. I mean, most of the the notes that he was he was ultimately uh, that he was taking and that were fraudulent, they were from uh, religious organizations and uh, pension funds. Wow! Uh, in, in many instances, uh, you know, in, he thought like many other people that you know he would get out of this hole. That this was a, as Madoff often said, this is a was going to be a temporary situation where you know you you push forward. Um, but certainly, and I think Madoff is is exceptional in this regard that there was a time which he even stopped trading so any belief that he could get out of it so to speak uh was really just a an unrealistic uh, entirely unrealistic belief there there wasn't ever a chance once you actually stop trading yeah um, most of the other ponzi schemes people are doing something i, I could say uh, if we were going to do it in a finance class they're never going to get out of it but they could at least pretend that they could because they were moving some things around right right um, right well, I guess that's that illusion um, is also maybe part of their hubris, right? That they that keeps this whole thing going, the illusion that they're going to get out of it. Yeah, I think. I mean, that that helps make it. I think a bit more comforting. Yeah. The challenge I, I've often faced when I think of, I mean, take someone like Madoff. I mean, I think we would all like to say we would we would obviously never get in that situation right. in the first place. But just imagine, let's put ourselves in the position that we're already in this hole. We're already down. You know, billions a, of dollars. A bill, yeah. We can't get out of it. We, we, we have a day in which all our investors are calling and praising us, wanting to give us more money. Regulars are calling to get our, our expert opinions because we're one of the leaders in the market. Then that day we go home, it's Friday night, we go home to our beautiful penthouse, we see our, our lovely wife, our two kids that also work mm. in the firm. And, and you know, after dinner we retire to our office uh, and we say, you know what, I, this is wrong, this needs to stop. I need to call you know, the FBI or the SEC to get this to stop. Most of us, I think, would say, I'll do that next week. I'll do that. Two more days with my family. With, and the next week would come, and the same thing would happen again. You'd say, I, I know this should stop, but I'll do it next week. And unless someone stops you, unless someone literally comes and pounds, pounds on your door and pulls you out in handcuffs, you just kind of keep it going. Yeah. And unfortunately, I don't think this is something so exceptional about Madoff or any of these characters in the book. It's something, if any of us was to fall prey and get in that situation— I think we would most of us unfortunately would probably keep it going like right, that. Right. We yeah, we would we don't we want to maximize pleasure, minimize pain. That's <laughs> yeah. We we don't uh, want we to go through this. We think in a short this. run. Uh, we want one more dinner at home That's uh, right. before yeah. we're going to be locked up forever. Well, and and then the shame and the humiliation and this supposed, you know, image you've built is going to collapse and uh, that's got to be incredibly Friend, stressful. I mean, all the friends, everyone that you've met, met your entire career, yeah. th- those are the first people. I mean, I think one thing that everyone has expressed to me is that, not to say this is a great strategy of actually figuring out who your real friends are, but 
when something like this happens, like those executives in my book, they find out very quickly who were their real friends and who were those friends because they were either wealthy or powerful. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm sure. I'm sure. And, and not surprisingly, 99% of the people turn out to be uh, fleeing and they yeah. never hear from again. Not your real friend. Uh, we're speaking with Eugene F. Sol- Soltis. He is a, a professor of business administration at the Harvard Business School and is the author of the book, uh, why they do it inside the mind of white collar criminals. Um, interesting, interesting topic. We'll take a break. Come back. Continue the discussion. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Joining us on the phone, Dr. Eugene F. Soltis. He is a professor of business administration at Harvard Business School and author of the book, Why They Do It, uh, Inside the Mind of White Collar Criminal. And um, the fun thing about this, by the way, the book is is huge. And Eugene, I, first of all, did you visit, I guess you visited how many prisons to do this? And you ended up talking to 50, um, 50 white collar criminals, right? I, I did. Uh, so, uh, believe it or not, there were actually a couple prisons. Uh, like B- Bernie Madoff is actually the person I've spent the most time with. Uh, I mean, every Wednesday night, 7 p.m., we'd speak on the phone, hundreds of pages of letters and emails. Wow. Um, I've actually never had the chance to visit him in prison. Uh, I've got rejected from the prison, though. Uh, oh, really? Apparently, I, provi- I, I create a safety hazard for the prison. Uh, I think they just well, want yeah. less visitors. <laughs> You're from Harvard. <laughs> you yeah, guys yeah, can't be trusted. Yeah, I guess, you know, uh, my, my, wife, my wife would be, be amazed to hear that I'm the yeah. danger there. <laughs> yeah, that is amazing. Yeah, you're a threat. Um, so that's interesting. So you had a lot of interaction with Bernie Madoff. And so t- what, what, did you, like, what else shocks you in all of your learning and, and, and working with these people, uh, the white-collar criminals, really the cream of the white-collar criminal crop? What, um, what, what did you learn? What stands out? I think one of the things that really surprised me is the the lack of remorse, which which really took me a long time to kind of to resonate with yeah. me. Um, and that I mean, when people were sent away in these positions, it, they had remorse. They missed their you know daughter's graduation, their son's birthday, you know their their anniversary with their their wife. I mean, those things really resonated. And many of them, I think, have become amazing. I see Amer- amazing parents and the extent their marriage held up, uh, amazing spouses uh, afterwards. But the actual crime themselves, um, it was an intellectual, it's almost like a discussion with them. And much of my time was not ta- discussing their case, but was actually discussing, I would read, bo- discuss books with them, the kinds of things I'm doing in class. And to see that it was much more of like an intellectual exercise to identify why this was a bad thing. Interesting. Or a, a, a wrong thing. And, and that's why I ultimately came to, this was, this was a, a, the challenge with white collar crime of how it just doesn't resonate with us the same as an as an outsider, we, we view it very much like a victim does, uh, hmm. that, you know, this is outrageous. Clearly, a smart person should identify this. Yeah. Um, but the trick is, is that, I mean, we believe that we will stop if, if we know the difference between right and wrong. But I'll say we, we all do things that we know are wrong, uh, to the extent we, we all speed a little bit if we're driving on right. a highway. Right. And we say, well, we're just keeping up with traffic. We know you can go 70 in a 65. That's fine. Everyone does that. Um, it, but we know it's wrong. Um, and, and so knowing the difference between right and wrong is not sufficient. What we really need is that gut feeling that what we're doing is harmful. 
And again, this is why, you know, we're not going to go out and stab someone, even if there was no law against it. Right. It feels harmful. The trick is that in white-collar crime, and, and as I saw these executives, they don't feel it's harmful. As a result, they never got that, that kind of flashing stop sign. Um, but it, it made me think about a lot about my behavior, uh, I think, a little bit differently and how I, like most people, you know, justify, you know, little, little, little kind of deviance here and there, going a little bit fast here, uh, that it just, why do I think that's okay, but, but not something else? Do we, um, is, is there any way, I guess, to, to change that, do you sense, to train it? Differently, I mean, I guess it is. It's different if I pull a knife and I threaten physical harm on you, versus you know access your funds and and take your funds. That's financial harm. It could be physical harm as well. But it just there's yeah, there's just not this edge to it. Right. I mean, I think that one of the things that was interesting that I saw was that everyone thinks that they're kind of they're the good guy. Right. Um, I mean, when I talk to the people that do insider trading, they say, yeah, I know some, you know, a, a little bit money was, but at least I was trying to build a firm. It's those guys that did financial fraud that are the real villains. And then you talk to people that did financial fraud, and they're like, but I was trying to build a firm, and yeah, I turned left instead of right. It's the people that did Ponzi schemes that are right. the real Ponzi. They didn't even want to build a firm. And then you talk to the Ponzi schemers, and they say, yeah, fine, maybe a billion dollars is lost. But that's nothing compared to the CEOs of the financial firms during the financial crisis that lost, you know, tens or hundreds of billions of dollars and then aren't even in prison. And so it's always everyone, no matter who they are in my book, they can see themselves as not as the, the, the real, real bad guy. And I think that's the challenge. Actually, I gave, I've been doing a survey with, with uh, students from some of the top management programs, uh, uh, alumni. And one of the questions which, which I've asked is, you know, do you see yourself as an honest person in some of these surveys? Hmm. And, and not surprisingly, you know, you see 98, 99% yeah, absolutely. say yes. Um, it's actually always amazes me that there's always 1% that say no to nope. that question. But <laughs> I'm a scoundrel. 90, 90, and then I, later on in the survey, I ask a question. In the past six months, have would someone in your firm describe you have, have, having done something that would be considered dishonest or, or unethical? Now, 99% of people say they're honest people, so you would say, well, you know, 1% or 2% would answer. Turns out, I find around 20-plus percent of people, 20-21%, say, yes, I've done something dishonest in the past six months. Wow. And 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 these are are not criminals. These are our students coming out of management programs. And that's exactly, I think, the challenge we face going to your question of how do we stop this is we we are all able to maintain this view that, on one hand, we're honest and, and, you know, thoughtful and respectful individuals while simultaneously doing things that are sometimes a little a little rough on the edges. And we well ultimately what we need to do is 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 basically reconcile these two things. Yeah. No, absolutely. Um, well and again, um I, I wonder as as you sit with Bernie Madoff, does he does what's his stance on what he did? Is is he very similar to what you're talking about? He he just doesn't quite feel the remorse he may need to? Yeah, I mean, it, Bernie's a little bit different than it, really any any other person I spoke with in that he actually did know his, his victims. I mean, these were family, these mm. were friends, these were members of the uh, kind of his religious community. They were in the Jewish community. Um, so he's a little bit different in that regard. But but in every case, you know, he rationalizes his, his behavior um, and and the harm to his victims. So, for example, the money that was lost from the charities. I mean, 
one of the things that people most often point out is being like, how could he have done that yeah. in these charities? Um, he looks at the only reason the monies had, uh, charities had any money in the first place is because they were created from these false gains earlier in time. Hmm. So in some sense, he gave them a fake $100 and then took that fake $100 back. So it was the charity never really existed in the first place. Interesting. And so he doesn't feel like he actually hurt the charity. It just he kind of lived a fake life, and then he took it away. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, I mean, strictly speaking, in some instances, that's technically true. But that's a real, I'll say, that's a, it's that's a, a, a bitter pill to be taking, being like, you know, you can... It, it's deception. It's it is. Deepest, deepest well, it's Ponzi struggle. scheme by definition, right? I mean, yeah. it's it's when you when you look at this too. Do you see as a business professor? It, do we do we teach? Are we not teaching enough um, about ethics and maybe too much about competition? I, I actually think we we make ethics too easy. Is what I will. Oh, say, do we? Okay. In the classroom. And that, you know, most of the time, you know, whether it's corporate training uh, or, or in a business school classroom, what generally happens is you, you bring people a, a case uh, of some, quote, challenging situation, and you say, we're going to discuss this for an hour, and we're going to figure out how we ought to resolve this. But simply by giving people in a training exercise, in a corporate training exercise, the case that they need to discuss, you've already vastly simplified the ethical decision, uh, difficulty of the ethical decision, because you've already told them what the trade-off is and what the ethical dilemma is. In a lot of instances, you know, let's go back to Raja Gupta. The trouble for him is if we were to pull out and say, should you call a hedge fund 23 seconds after a Goldman Sachs board meeting and divulge what you learned? Let's have an hour-long discussion around this. Uh, let's just say that wouldn't be a particularly interesting discussion right, to have. Right. That would be resolved in eight seconds. And he would presumably identify that in eight seconds as being a clearly the wrong thing to do. But in many instances, people just don't see what they're doing as harmful. They don't see the consequences genuinely at the time. Yeah. And so what we need to do is, at least as I see, stop spending time just kind of pontificating and think, doing these exercises, which, if anything, can lead to false confidence that we're actually better at solving yeah. these ethical dilemmas. I wouldn't have called. Really <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah we, I mean, we all, we all successfully pass it. You leave the class or the training exercise, and you say, great, I, I, can, I can resolve any of these things when I, when I run into them. What we need to do is basically accept, maybe with a little bit more humility, that when we're actually placed in these compromised positions, like many of these smart, smart executives were, that we might not always do the right thing. That pressure, norms, uh, a lot of incentives can drive us to do things that we would never, ever think when we're sitting in the comfort of our our room right now that we would ever do. Boy, it seems like that would be so valuable. And let's start designing systems that help intercede earlier and, and kind of create that red light, even when we might not see ourselves when we're actually at the time making these decisions. Because there are triggers and every human has triggers and, you know, insecurities and fears. And boy, if you could help uh, a, a program in a program, a uh, an MBA program, a student to identify what their triggers are. I mean, it might not be financial triggers that worry them. It might be, you know, looking good with others. It might be their in- other insecurities, other fears they have. So, I mean, I guess awareness could be a huge uh, lesson to teach. What else? Yeah. What else could we be just teaching our kids? And how how should we take? this as a teaching tool for our own families, for our own, you know, family members that are in business or for any of us that think that we're above crime? 
I think uh, how how easily influenced we are actually by by the surrounding norms. I mean, it's something you know we teach we teach you know our, our kids. You know, you're going to be influenced by who you hang around with on the playground. Right. But it, what's funny is as we get kind of older and older, we we generally don't take that advice quite as seriously. Uh, I mean, the number of people that you know smart smart students that I, I've had that that I see that believe that they can enter a firm that has maybe a, a let's just say a a pretty aggressive or maybe even a, a slightly compromised culture but what you think is that I'm a I'm an ethical person I'm a better person than that so if anything I will help change that it won't change me yeah and this is what we naturally do and or will or even if we we seek it's a little dodgy and this is not what I want to be a part of I'll leave but the trick is is that more often than not Two things are going to happen. First, you're probably going to become that culture. Right. Uh, it, it, so, and you're not even going to identify it when you are compromised. But even if you're a, able to identify and say, wow, this is, I, I'm in way too deep, the problem is then you're in the situation of quitting, whistleblowing. It, there's only bad outcomes for you in that case. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. So I wish we would all take kind of the advice that you know, we give our, our sons and daughters on the playground and, and actually figure out how to incorporate that more into how we all make our, our career decisions. It's so good. Eugene F. Soltis, thank you so much for your insight, your great work. Again, remember, Eugene is a professor of business administration at Harvard Business School, author of the book, Why They Do It, Inside the Mind of the White Collar Criminal. Powerful, uh, powerful insight, I think, for all of us. You are not above uh, crime. You're not. And it's the second you think you are, you are setting yourself up. We all will fall uh, prey to just those trends, those beliefs, those assumptions, those fears, those insecurities. we got to stay on our toes. And we also can't just allow a white-collar criminal to seem less significant of a criminal than, um, than every other crime going on out there on the streets. Great insight. We'll take a break, friends. When we come back, we'll continue the discussion. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Welcome back, friends. You know, we were talking white-collar crime, but a bigger crime... Maybe letting Elmo go. Could be. Our cute little red friend. Is it true that they he had an exit interview? It was a mock exit interview. Oh. The idea being if the, the proposed budget goes through okay. and if PBS takes a bunch of cuts, what happens to Elmo? All right. Now, I thought, they're, I thought they were only showing new content on HBO. Well, and the, the, as the article points out that this is attached to, uh, Sesame Street has an HBO deal also, so they're probably in better financial situations. But uh, but what about the other Muppets? Well, well, it's the other Muppets, but also the availability of the show because many rural areas, their PBS affiliates would go away because of funding. Hmm. And so kids wouldn't be able to see right. this educational programming. Oh. And so there's that involved too. So it's kind of a, a fun parody they put together for, I think the Huffington Post put it together. But All it's right. quite funny. Go ahead. Hey, what's going on? Oh, thanks for coming in, Elmo. Um, we have something very important to discuss. Elmo happy to help. Elmo loves to help. Elmo, uh, it does mean no great joy to inform you that due to recent cuts in government funding to PBS, you are no longer employed by Sesame Street Workshop. 
Huh? What? Elma, you're being laid off. Just like that? Elma's been working at Sesame Street for 32 years. Elma, Elma... Yes, well, Elma, the Trump administration is getting all arts and education funding from the new congressional budget. But Elma's rent just went up. Elma, you're going to land on your feet. Don't worry. But Elma hasn't been unemployed since the 80s. What's going to happen to Elma's insurance? Elmo has pre-existing condition. Well, you should apply for government health care while well, you can. That's being gutted, too. <laughs> Where is Elmo supposed to go? Elmo's only real talent is being Elmo. Well, you could take pictures with tourists in Times Square for tips. Huh? <laughs> Are there other monsters for you, too? Cookie Monster? Tully Monster? Yes, we let Tally and Cookie go this morning. But what about the kids? They have YouTube, Elmo. YouTube. Okay, Elmo will go bye-bye now. His disdain for YouTube. That's sad. Wow. Elmo is... Be looking for Elmo and Cookie Monster at a Walmart greeter position near you. I'm not sure what a Muppet is to do in this kind of economy. Soon to be Elmo the Hobo. (laughs) <laughs> That'll be a movie, <laughs> Elmo the Hobo. But it does kind of shine a light on the reality when he said, what about the kids? Like, what about all these kids that don't necessarily have Wi-Fi access to watch YouTube and all the wonderful joys of that and instead had PBS? Yeah. <sighs> my ch- we, I showed this to my kid last night. He's like, where's Elmo going? And like tears. We're like, whoa, 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 oh, hold no, on, hold no, on. No, 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 This is just, we'll have HBO, son. Dad will take care of you. Oh, it's sad, you know. You These decisions hurt people. Yeah. They hurt people. Well, okay. We'll take a break, my friends. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. <laughs> 